Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Mark Stephen. Mark teaches literature at the University of Exeter. His other books include Red Modernism and Splatter Capital. Today, we're going to be talking to him about his latest work called Class War, A Literary History. And I'm really happy to welcome Mark to the show. Mark, how are you this morning? Morning for me, afternoon for you. Not quite afternoon yet. Hey, it's a glorious to be here. I'm really excited to talk. Yeah, man. I, I love the book, which, you know, I think people who listen to the show, regular listeners, I always start off saying that. When, I, when I've talked to an author and I've read their work, uh, it's always like, oh, I've loved this. I'm sure they're like jaded by now hearing me say that. Like, oh, he's like, oh, he loves everything. But it's really a testament to my amazing curation because I, I only bring on people who've done amazing things or written amazing things or are involved in amazing things. So it is honest when I say that I, I really enjoyed the book. So I want to thank you for the kind of the style and, and the way you kind of put it together. Thank you so much. That's so friendly and comradely of you to say. I really do appreciate that. Yeah, because, you know, it's, a, you know, just by the title, class war, right? It's a heavy topic, <laughs> right? And, and, you, and you somehow managed to get across the import of the topic while also maintaining sort of a, I don't know if poetic is the word I would use, but it, it's quite like artistic how you weave the stories together. And I'm curious if that was intentional or sort of a, a unintentional outcome of just your research and your focus and, and that kind of stuff. Oh man, I think it's both of the, these things. So the the story of class war, it it is in the first instance a story, and I, I'd like to think it's a damn good, exciting one. It's populated with great heroes doing astonishing and well-transformative things, which means that the the material that I've been working with this, it's just one banger of an anecdote or story after another, and that has absolutely nothing to do with me. But then when it came to putting all of this thing together into a book, so much of my desire was to honor those revolutionaries that I talk about all throughout the book who who were great readers and writers themselves and to commit their lives, their stories, their actions to a narrative that's not just historical facts, not just information, but one that conveys the the urgency, the excitement, the highs and lows, and that that human essence that has driven them forward to to try and distill that into a book form was was one of my goals. It's, it's interesting that you that you mention the history of this, right? Because you you spend time tracing a couple of centuries worth of conflict and movement and and moments, and one feels that history. But it's not just names, dates, times. Like this is this is not you know. The, the history that I grew up with, which was was really based on a lot of rote memorization, right? To be to be honest, right? You've managed in the book to really 3D out these characters, these moments. You know, why did you think it was important to to put some flesh on the bones, so to speak, of of some of these characters using literature as a as a device to do it? Well, first, thank you. I, I love that description of trying to 3D out these moments away from the dates and the names into something more fleshy and alive. Um, why did I feel it was necessary to to do that? Part of this comes down to my own sense of politics and class politics right now. That Marxist, we've been talking about the idea of class and the proletariat for a good long time now. And there's all these ongoing debates about what the cause of revolution is going to be, how it's going to kick off, or how you mobilize a bunch of workers or a bunch of the dispossessed. How do you 
how do you go to the barracks, the, the, the barracks, not the barracks, how do you go to the barricades and how do you go there, not alone, but with, with your comrades? And the answers to those questions I found aren't so much in just the historical and economic structures, the fact that a whole lot of people are poor and hungry and uh, immiserated. That's never been conditions enough to commit collectively to action. There always has to be that degree of human connection, of vision of some better alternative world or some other thing. And that's the kind of stuff that you see coming through, not just in economic analyses of this and that situation, but in what we might call a more literary description of those scenarios. We get a sense of what people might be thinking, what people might be feeling, what motivates and what drives them. And I think that is not just a question of narrative of how to tell the story, but ultimately of what we think class is and what we think class can do in the present. And, you know, I think that gives us an excellent opportunity to really start to define some things in, in this moment, right? Because a term like like class war, these things you hear in, in certain circles, you know, I, I always say when I was in, in college, like a hundred years ago, a lot of the conversations that are far more mainstream today, you only heard them in your economics class or in your political theory class, right? Like conversations around capitalism versus Marxism were, were often relegated to just the areas of academia, right? And then these conversations have started to permeate into what I call like just regular life, right? They have been part of revolutionary moments, but but I do credit like, you know, Occupy as one of those like key things that sort of pushed these types of conversations into the mainstream. And what I found really interesting very early on in the book, you highlight that very thing with a reference to the Milken Institute and a conversation they're having there around class. And this is this is obviously like a, you know, for those who are not familiar with the Milken Institute, it's 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 clearly like on the side of capital, right? But wrestles with many of issues around, you know, the shaping of capital, the protection of capital. I guess it depends on your leaning as to how you see their conversations kind of fitting into that. So long lead up to say, you know, with all of that kind of in the mix, like where do you settle on the notion of class war and what that means today relative to some of this historical academic stuff from 19th century and, and, and 20th century? Oh, great question. Um, so the, the, the question, I guess, is what are we actually talking about when we talk about class war and what are we talking about when we talk about class war right now in, in the present? And I, I think you're right to, to suggest that there is a, a mainstreaming of what is or what was once a, a a more exclusively radical formulation. So the idea of class war as not, not just an idea with associations, but as a, a discrete phrase, those two terms, class and war, put, put together, has been in circulation for around two centuries now. And it has usually emanated out of directly revolutionary situations. So on the back of the French Revolution is where we have um, like utopian socialist um, Saint-Simon talk, talking about it. But now, and, and you could probably do like a, a Google engram on this, the, the, the phrase class war is in super high circulation that it appears not just in left-wing periodicals and university classrooms. If you do even just the news search on Google, you will see that class war is cropping up almost every other day in this and that headline from The Guardian, from The New York Times, from the the, the financial papers. And it's coming up from multiple areas of the political spectrum. 
I think one of my, my, my favorite uses or maybe even co-options of this term is its, its application to animal life. So in the book, I talk a little bit about in, in Latin America, um, capybaras, the, the, these funny little creatures have been just destroying bourgeois gentrified properties. And a lot of people have been saying that they're waging class war. And right now at the present, my, 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 my absolute favorite version of this which if, if I were writing the book now, it would probably have a chapter of its own, is the great orca class war. The, 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 the minute you brought that up, I thought about the orcas. I'm, I'm, you got you to gotta tell this story, and I'm team orca, but go ahead. <laughs> I Team orca all the way. I, the orca is my politics right now. Um, the, the idea that orcas, these whale-like creatures, have been effectively collectivizing and banding together to to destroy yachts. So if there is an emblem of the, the, the current enemy class, the leisure class, we think of like stupid big Jeff Bezos type yachts, and these animals are destroying it. We are in the age, not just of class war, but of the great orca class war. <laughs> but all, all of this is a round way, roundabout way of saying that um, the idea of class war has been thoroughly mainstreamed. It's not just in circulation on the the radical militant or revolutionary left. It's being used in the the mainstream liberal and bourgeois press. It's being used by by the right wing. And there is a consistent meaning to this this phrase, this term. And it's a meaning that is consistent with its use all throughout revolutionary history. And it's this that when we talk about class war as opposed to class struggle, it's use what philosophers of language would call a speech act. It's to use a phrase that's meant to catalyze or inspire action. To talk about class war is to suggest that it's not just a struggle, a conflict between us and them, between um, those of us who are exploited and have to pay rent and those who exploit us and those to whom we pay rent, is to suggest that that conflict has escalated to a point of actual bloody violence. And it's to urge a doubling down on that conflict. Uh, it, it is to speak in the language of escalation. The, the great British uh, philosopher, cultural theorist, Mark Fisher, had this, this great formulation that I quote in the book. He says that um, a class war is already underway. It's being waged. The, the thing to do now is to choose your sides and to choose your weapons. That's, that's the kind of escalationism that we're encountering in this phrase. And it's what we're encountering from both the left and the right, but in different ways. The, the left should be getting behind that, whereas the right, the, 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 the Milken Institute that you spoke about before, they speak about it in terms of fear and trembling. This is this is a point of concern. This is a threat to their way of being. In you know, I, again, I want to shout out Team Orca on on this because I I saw a picture of uh, <laughs> I don't even know if this is true because sometimes I see a lot of bullshit on the internet. But apparently, like you mentioned, Jeff Bezos has like a new yacht that looks like an like a nineteenth century like whale trawler or something, but it's modern again. I don't know if this shit is true. It wouldn't surprise me if it was. Also wouldn't surprise me if it was bullshit, but I got to do some research on it. But I remember people being like, if this is true, the orcas have got to go after this thing. It literally looks like like a, a 19, 18, well, 18th century like like whale trawler kind of thing, but with all the fixes, as, as we would say. So I had to throw that out there. But I do want to to talk about the warfare part of this, right? And the choosing of of the weapons, because it's, it's interesting from an American perspective, right? So this is where my I'm going to only talk about here in the United States. The the notion of class is very much like rejected, right? Like America is supposed to be this ultimate meritocracy. You can come here from anywhere, and you know make it. And you can succeed. You can have a better life. Some of those things are true as, as my parents are immigrants. And I'm here and I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> um, so I don't totally dispel the branding. But I also know America is, is built and predicated on, you know, genocide, extraction, and violence. Right? Those things are also true. And more true than the first story. Um, so I frame that 
to say that what I have found interesting here is what attempts to happen in the discourse is a disappearance of class as a real thing. And then the liberal set, which I'll say, which I'll define as sort of like the political Democratic Party side, will also push back against notions of class to say, well, those are things that happen in other places. That's not the American story, right? Like, this is not who we are, right? Like, I could see someone like Obama, like, telling telling us that, you know, this is not who we are. You know, we're not at war. We're all, we're not two Americas. We're one America, right? You know, like, we can all do the stump speech, right? So in an environment, at least in an American environment, how do we make visible what I think the other side, both liberal and right-wing, try to make invisible, which is class itself. I, I, I don't think that's just in America either. Um, it's so I'm speaking from the the, the UK, and we get a, a a similar version of a a disappearance of a certain kind of class politics. Um, in favor of language of um, social mobility and meritocracy, um, which social mobility and meritocracy, um, they're, they're, they're such powerful myths, and they are myths um, in Roland Barthes' sense of that term. They are stories that are told and repeated to naturalize a completely unholy system. Um, they're, they're so powerful because there are examples of those that that, that, that have made made good I, I speak as as one of them a scrappy working class kid from Australia who's managed to get a job teaching lit at a British university um those those few exceptions prop up the that that myth of meritocracy and they work against the realities of of class um why I think it's such a, a challenge in the first instance to visualize, to make visible the entrenched extant reality of class structure and class hierarchy now, though, is not just because of those myths, not just because of liberal liberal, liberal discourse, though. I think it's there, there, there are at least two important structural factors in this. One is that when we talk about class, and especially when we talk about what would be called the the proletariat in Marxist language or the, or the working class, isn't today what it once was. It isn't factory workers, miners, and railway way, way operators. Um, there are still huge amounts of people employed in these industries, but that is not the, the only or even the, 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 the dominant majority in what is today's proletariat or working class. Um, today, those who have, and we're talking about the working class in Marxist terms, um, those who have nothing but their own labor, which they must sell in order to survive, that's what makes them a working class. Um, so many of those, those persons find themselves in the gig economy, working in urban jobs, going from one shift to another. These are not the same kind of large-scale industrial union jobs that, that, that were more viable once upon a time. So we have that at home in the, the core first world states, a proletariat that is dispersed around scattered, informalized kinds of labor. But then we also have to think about the internationalization of this. I think what you were saying before is correct, that if there is a degree of meritocracy in the United States, it's meritocracy that's bought from genocide, extraction, and also imperial expansion. We think about the outsourcing of what was once nationalized industrial labor to the, the second and third world, to other places across the globe. And so we have a proletariat, a working class that is in the core states scattered and diffused, but also it exists far beyond any national or sovereign borders, which means that to think about class today requires us to think in creative ways about finding solidarities with those that don't have factory discipline, that don't see a hundred other workers every single day in the same kinds of exploit exploitation, those who are more invisible to each other and to everyone. So that's the challenge, to find solidarity between those persons, but also to think about this internationally, that 
class is not a national but an international problem and must be thought about and mobilized in those terms. They're huge astronomical challenges, and they're challenges that revolutionaries throughout history have tried to meet, have tried to work with and around, um, traveling across borders. But I think it's especially important at the moment to, when we are talking about class then, to start thinking in terms of stuff like borders, migration, race, those kind of things should be absolutely inextricable from class at the moment because they're the principal means through which class does start to become newly visible for the present. And I'm, I'm glad you brought up like so many of those points, particularly at the end, because I, I do have in my notes, I, I want to have a, a conversation around identity and class. And within identity comes many realities, one of them being race. I want to put a, a slight pin on that for a moment because I want to pick up on, like continue a little bit on this point around the the gig economy and the the dispersal of of labor, you know, because it's it's something that I, I often think about in the sense that so much, particularly in a, in a New York where you know now I'm moving around a lot with the, with the car, something that I didn't do kind of pre pandemic, and the amount of you know delivery is just unbelievable, right? So. Uber Eats or whatever, all these different things that people used to order food. You know, used to be back in the day, you just got a the menu from the local Chinese spot and that's where you ordered. <laughs> but now you can order from any number of places and restaurants that didn't used to deliver food. They were kind of come to us, sit down and have a meal, now also deliver food, right? So the delivery has exploded. The Amazon has exploded with people getting deliveries now on Sundays. Used to be you ordered a package, you didn't get that shit on Sunday. Now you get that shit on Sunday, right? You get it next day, all those things, right? Things that I also take part in, right? So I'm not sitting here talking about like I never order shit from Amazon, right? I just took back three packages from Amazon, yes, yesterday. <laughs> so um, unfortunately, I detest it, but I use it. And I bring that up to illustrate kind of the point in, in the sense that it feels to me that the factory worker of yesteryear was someone that you touched, maybe you didn't, maybe you did, depending on where you lived and what you did and that kind of stuff. And their work was not as tied to your comfort in a way that this feels like today, right? Like if I, I got to go to the airport later on and getting from here without an Uber is not going to happen, right? Partially because the local car services are out of business. You know, we, we used to have a local car service where you could order a car, you call and talk to a dispatcher, gone, right? So I got no choice but to use an Uber, right? So I'm, I'm curious about how that has become part of this stickiness that so much of all of these things, kind of like ants running around, right? Not to lower these people's standard, but there's a Dave Matthews song. Dave Matthews, I love Dave Matthews. Ants marching, right? It's like all these, it feels like that song from the 90s is living, but we're living in that now more than ever. Like all these people moving, running, doing things to make an asshole like me be able to move from one place to another, right? And, and so how do we pull that apart. Oh, Christ. Um, <laughs> so yeah, solve the problem, man. Solve like fix capital and end that shit. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, I, I guess that's the thing, man, that this is a new iteration of a real old problem. The, the fact that I mean, the, the, the pithy Adornian formulation is you, you can't live right in, in, in a wrong world. And what that probably means more expansively is that we think about our our the, the the way we inhabit the world and the extent to which we have been alienated from not just all the stuff that brings us pleasure and joy or at least a good lot of that stuff but a whole lot of the stuff that you need to function in the world before we even get to stuff like flourishing the, the the stuff you need to to survive the idea being that 
this is this is, this is something that Marx would speak about, like back in Das Kapital, that um to live under capitalism, you you can't just opt for like a, a Henry David Thoreau Walden out. Um, we are all constantly consuming and eating one another's extracted, exploited labor, and and there's no. No way around that. That is utterly inescapable. We are caught in this great spider web of a system, and the the, the the only way to extract ourselves from that is to set the whole thing ablaze. And I guess that's the question, and that's what I've tried to to think about with the book, leaping from the one revolutionary moment, uprising, situation, force to another, to think about how human women and men with the odds stacked so aggressively against them, how they have banded together and mobilized and burnt shit down, and in many cases created some sort of new, if territorially localized system. Now, connecting that up to the present is, again, the huge... The, the, the world historic challenge that all of us face now, and I think everything, our well-being and increasingly our survival depends on that, how, how we can blow up the pipeline, how we can tear all of this down. And there's no easy solution to that. But the suggestions that seem to come to me for, from looking at this kind of stuff historically is that there are two sides to it, and both of these are necessary and intertwined. Um, one is aggressive mobilization against the powers that 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 be. This is the um, this is the the war side of class war. But the other side of that, which is crucial and necessary and cannot be separated out from that, is not just all militarism, is to provide some glimpse, some experience of the better life of something that isn't having to drive assholes here and there isn't having to ride around on a on a on a bicycle delivering food that and this can happen at many different levels and has done so historically has proved utterly powerful so i, I think his, historically my, my my favorite examples of these would be say um Che Guevara and the Latin American guerrillas, they're, they're up in the mountains and they're not just picking fights with the force, forces of reactionary and fascistic CIA-backed suppression. They're also working with the farmers, engaging in what, 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 what some would call mutual aid, trying to form new bonds of solidarity. Or you think um, cl- close to home for you on the, in, the, in the United States, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. That w- wasn't just about picking up shotguns and terrorizing the cops. It was also about feeding hundreds and thousands of hungry children, of setting up programs where people can have medical treatment, can have libraries, can have assistance with basic stuff. Um, I, I think the care work is super important here. Um, setting up ways to collectively look after and help out with child rearing rearing labor. Those kind of things intermingled with and crossed with the more militarized side of it. That is how revolutionaries have toppled formations in the past. I think we might need something like that today, but on a scale the likes of which the world has never seen before. And that's a a perfect dovetail into a a, a part of the conversation that I wanted to get to. As someone like like myself in, in the work that I do, I recognize and understand how, for lack of a better term, the military analogy is one that exists everywhere, right? If you're watching sports if you're if and and sports here in the United States is particularly militarized more is more so than anywhere else that I've that I've ever seen right like you know I, I watch a lot of sports and um there isn't you know military flybys in like just a regular soccer match right like I'm not watching like Liverpool versus West Ham and seeing like tons of planes and the Union Jack and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's interesting that for its international game as, as soccer is, you don't really see the national flag of whatever you might be watching, 
right? But if you go to a football game here, it's like, what the fuck, man? Like, it, it's it's a it's a full on military rally, right? So I say all that to say that the concepts of war, the analogies of war, exist within sports. They exist within business. They exist within culture in a way to that also renders them almost invisible, right? Particularly when you're in a highly militarized society like the United States. And I'm always shocked when I say that to people. They're like, what do you mean highly militarized? Right? Like they don't even see it, right? So I'm someone who tries to avoid, if I can, when I can, the language of the military, right? Like I try to actively say like, hey, our our new business proposal is not taking a hill. We're not storming a beach. We're not doing any of those things, right? Like we should try to use different language, right? So while understanding the seriousness and the, and the direness of the fight, right? Like this is class warfare. How do we lean into, or to your perspective, is it possible to lean into emphasizing different realities that, not to de-emphasize the seriousness of the conditions, but don't lean us into the the conflict that is that is coming from from the other side, right? And and I'll, I'll give one more example of this that I that I thought was very profound. Um, there was a, a young activist killed in murdered in Cop City, right? Which is a terrible idea of a plan in Atlanta. And I'm going to paraphrase this, but he he talked about like violence. They rather they talked about violence and said something to the effect of that's not how we're going to win, right? Like that's, those are their tools. That, that's their language. We're never going to win with that work. And again, this is a paraphrase, right? It, it really stuck with me, right? So I'm curious, how do we lean into that thinking? Because I, I probably tend to agree with it, right? As someone who's sort of a pacifist, right? Like I'm not trying to really, I'm a lover, not a fighter. I'm not really trying to fuck people up. Right. <laughs> I man, I, I I absolutely hear you on 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 all of this, and yeah, that what happened coming out of the the protest, the trying to stop Cop City is just tragic and fucking horrific and awful. The so I think there are a couple of different ways to think about, or I think we need to think about this kind of stuff. Um, one of them is sadly to reckon with the situation that we are all now in very much against our choice for the vast majority of us. And it's that if the current system of domination, exploitation, dispossession, and global eradication, if either it goes or we go, I I think we are at that kind of tilting point historically, which brings us to a, a very scary bottleneck to fight against that to put an end to that kind of thing means to come up against a system that that does have all the militarization at its back it has its armies it has its paramilitaries it has its police forces that there is no way that a serious confrontation a serious reckoning with that system is going to take place without it being warlike. And I I think this is what so many of those thinkers from the radical left are implying when they say that the class war is already on, just one side is fighting, Uh, one side is already stacked with the weapons and the the arms. Um, So I think to that extent, the, the violence that comes with war is a horrible historical necessity. But on, on the other hand, and I really, really want to stress this and, and emphasize this, it cannot for us just be about barricades, bombs, and bullets. If it is just about that, we end up succumbing to the deliriums of military ideology. We we find ourselves falling into the same kind of aggressively statist, typically nationalist, racist, xenophobic, usually sexist bullshit that that we're, we're up against. This is why I really want to emphasize that 
if we are talking about class war as opposed to a, a fratricidal war of extermination between nations, we need to be talking about what can be offered, what can be provided, what can be done for the dispossessed, the exploited, the, the, for those of a growing number who want to inhabit a world that is not this trash can fire. Um, so I think part of it is historical necessity, the, the, the idea that we may need to pick up the gun to put down the gun, which is a, a horrible prospect, but I think it's one that has been forced upon us by, by the systems and by, by, by the powers that be. But if that is what is happening or what needs to happen, it cannot be just that. It needs to be so much more. It needs to be humane and warm and generous and all of those things that we should have at the core of any sort of vision for a, a better world, call that communism or socialism or whatever. And, you know, we, yeah, the gun, man. I'm definitely not with the guns. <laughs> you know, like America's got way, way, way oh, yeah. too many guns, right? And it's it's crazy for a, a person from the BK, which, you know, the right would say is like, oh, man, New York streets are so dangerous. You know, I'm like, not really. <laughs> right? Like, I feel much safer walking down the streets of New York than I would being in a mall in texas let's put it that way oh, yeah. right like i'll take i'll take my chances on these bk streets that shit is scary yeah relative to that mall in texas like i don't know what's going on in there but i, I want to also like get to one of the cores of this which is literature right like literature is is obviously woven through and and deeply threaded into the work of the book itself and what I was often left with as I was going through the book is a couple of things, right? More than a couple of things. I'm going to try and distill it to a couple of things. How literature, however that is defined, which is also part of the, the class conversation, what is literature, what is not, often acts as a signal, right? Like as, as someone who does a lot of foresight work, we're always out there looking for signals, right? Where's the culture going? What's happening? What can we kind of glom onto? And it, it, it was striking to me how much literature acted as a signal to larger movements that were bubbling underground. Um, so that was one point I want to hear your, your thoughts on that. And I'm, curious how you think that goes, how that works going forward, where our notion, at least in my mind, our notions of literature are even more distributed, you know, with the rise of blogging. And that's a lot of garbage, for lack of a better word, like just a lot of written words that are just terrible. Seems like we're at a, at a peak of that. <laughs> So kind of- There are a lot of words. Yeah, a lot of words that are bad, right? So literature is a signal and what that pretends for a future where words are getting worse. <laughs> I don't know if they're getting worse, but they're, 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 there are a lot of them. Um, so I, I guess this comes down to where, where where the book of mine came from. That So I, I, I'm trained as I make my living as a, a literary critic. I, I teach literature. I spend a, a lot of my time poring over lines of poetry and picking apart stuff like scansion and diction and, and, and things like that. And the origins of this book came from me reading a fairly well-known novel back when I lived in Australia, a, a book called The Iron Heel by an American author, Jack London, that most people know him for another book called Call of the Wild, this tremendous, sublime love song to wolves. But he wrote this book called The Iron Heel, which seemed to be a forceful, perhaps almost dystopian at times, but projectively utopian, looking at a better world, distillation of all the major class and labor disputes that dominated the American Gilded Age. And I said I, I wanted to think about writing a, a history of these kind of narratives, these specifically literary tellings and retellings of 
class conflict. So I started off thinking about literature as not a signal, but as a a documentary medium. Literature is, it's slow to catch historical events compared to other media. It takes a a good while to to write something down, to then get it published and out, out into the world. And so I started thinking about it like that. But in my research for that, it dovetailed with an interesting tendency, one that I and I reckon many of your listeners will almost know about, but I don't think it's been properly or fully thought through before as much as it ought to have. The fact that literature is, as you say, it's a signal and it has been used as part of the the revolutionary process. So if, if anyone's spent a bunch of time reading Karl Marx, they'll know that he's not just a a stodgy critic and economic historian. They'll they'll know that he writes ghost stories. He writes he, his tales that would inspire revolution are gothic horror depictions of capital more so than they are just economic history. Like we, we think about those famous opening lines of the, the manifesto, a, a specter is haunting Europe. Um, we think about how he describes capital as a, as, as, a, as a vampire that lives on dead labor. Um, Marx famously said that he learned more from the, the, the French novelist Balzac than from all the, the historians and economists c- combined. And if Marx was thinking like that way, so many of the the more militant, active, out-in-the-field revolutionaries would do likewise. Trotsky was writing literary criticism about uh, Shakespeare whilst training across Russia to different parts of the Red Army. Mao Zedong was writing, I think, genuinely beautiful classical Chinese verse whilst up in the mountains with the guerrillas. Um, Che Guevara suggested that revolutionaries keep at least one good book in the the, the bottom of their pack alongside ammunition and and, and day rations. With Huey P. Newton, he um he attributes so much of his politicization to to learning to read, to to reading. So literature has been part of the revolutionary process, and it seems to have been so for a very long time. It provides the language, the formulations, sometimes the inspiration, sometimes even the directives for strategy and actions that has inspired revolutionaries the the, the world over. So if it's acting as a signal, it's a signal that finds its mediating force in those living embodiments of revolution who are readers, who are writers, who pick up the books and then put that stuff into action. And so my book has been an attempt to to put a whole lot of that together, to show concretely and categorically that literature is not just about revolution, it can well be revolutionary. But to that second part of the question about where we sit in the present, um, in the epilogue, I, I reel through like a, a, a small canon of books that I think are doing really exciting stuff with this at the moment. And I, I'd like to shout out a, a bunch of really exciting, lively, revolutionary poetry, especially stuff being put out by small presses in the, the, the States. So um, Commune Editions, uh, a press based in Oakland, um, they, they have all their stuff for PDF in PDF form up on their website, go go check them out. They do really cool stuff. Um, that, but also the, the the blogs and posts have been this tremendous place for revolutionary poetry that does speak to and speak into social movements of the, the last couple of years in fairly concrete ways. Um, we've seen those that are writing, those that are reading, participating in actions taking to the streets in various ways. But if we are getting this literary proliferation, it's not just literary in the the, the old school sense of novels and poems and stuff that has been published by actual publishers. I think this sense of revolutionary narrative and micro-narrative is, is something that is very alive in the scene at the moment. And I think visual media is increasingly powerfully strong on this stuff. 
I think I, I suggested earlier, um, you do your, your n-gram search on class war, and a bunch of those entries are going to be glossing a whole lot of the very successful mainstream films that have come out in recent years, a, a bunch of very successful recent television shows as well that have been perhaps capitalizing on and exploiting, but also circulating and recirculating the iconography, the stories of of revolution, of revolutionary combat, and the desire to make things otherwise. So if there is a literary history to this, and if literature is a signal of transformation and change, it's it's one that's with us right now. Yeah, ab- absolutely. I've, as we were having, been having this conversation, I've been having visions of Andor in my, in my mind as they as they storm the factory, right? <laughs> um, that's it. If it makes its way into the Star Wars universe, it can go anywhere. Absolutely. Absolutely, and and it's interesting that that you highlighted the the idea of of poetry because I I think to to poets in particular very very early on in sort of the American story with a, a Phyllis Wheatley a Sojourner Truth and I highlighted those women in particular because what is so interesting to me is that their very act of being literate at a time when literacy was not only illegal for black people but it was it was in a weird paradox assumed to be impossible right like black people were chattel slavery they were incapable by by the the minds of the day to be to have sophisticated thought right no more than brutes or or animals and yet you had these women and others that not only became literate but became incredibly accomplished as as forces in literature so i use them as an example because i wanted to get your thoughts on the very act of being literate as part of the revolutionary notion of challenging the ideas of the time right as as someone who grew up in hip hop there was a time when hip hop was not even considered real music, right? Now it has become the most dominant music on earth, right? Both in music and in fashion and everything else. Again, these are revolutionary things. I'm curious about combining those ideas and your thoughts on on how that fits into these narratives. I think you're so right with, with, with all of this that to read and to write literature is, it's, a reclamation. It's a self-assertion. It's to say that that this life matters, and to do that from the standpoint of a. And this is so often true, and is especially especially true in those examples that you mentioned. Um, to do so from the standpoint of a a racialized underclass is to actively fight back and to insist otherwise against the, the the forces of systemic dehumanization. And that is so important. And it's important not just as a, a symbolic gesture that's important for this or that individual. That, that shit has proven inspiring and transformative. I think the one of the very canonical examples of this is we think about what is perhaps the most, perhaps most, most celebrated, or at least well known, of the African American slave narratives, which is the, um, the 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 life of Frederick Douglass. The we think about the moment in that book where he describes becoming literate and starting to read, and it's a moment of self recognition of this is what they think of me. And so this is what I think of them. It's a moment of crystalline radicalizing clarity. And that particular moment in his widely circulated, massively well-known autobiography is, is one that has circulated through revolutionary movements and moments, and one that has been especially picked up by Black radicals in the US. And you, you see it echoed in, I, I think, like one, one of the dominant genres there is what we might call a, a carceral or, or 
prison narrative, the autobiography of Huey P. Newton, our revolutionary suicide, it's called, it is a version of this, and he echoes that. We get similar things coming from the, the, the great Asata Shakur uh, when, when she's incarcerated. So, yeah, absolutely. The, the sheer fact of literacy and of committing that to narrative is in itself a, a, a tremendous radical force field, but it's also one that comes with at least one well-known historical limitation is that literacy requires actual literacy. And there have been at least two dominant workarounds for this. Um, One of them is, and you see this over and over again throughout revolutionary history, is that revolutionaries teach people how to read. They promote literacy. This means a whole lot to them. They, they, they set up schools. They work with reading and writing because that's how we record. That's how we share our stories. But the other workaround of that is the, um, let's call it the Soviet answer, is um, Lenin famously said, Lenin, who had a lot of love for literature, said um, that of all the arts, cinema is the most important for us. And this is because leading a revolution in a gigantic country, mostly populated by illiterate or semi-literate peasants, meant that you had a new narrative medium with which to tell the story of revolution, with which to offer those signals, but one that completely sidesteps the question of literacy. And in that, we can we, we can think back to the, the present about the, the narratives, the icons, the images of class war proliferating today. This is something that might speak to the the need for international global solidarity, the way that an image can leap linguistic boundaries in the way that a poem cannot, the way that visual narratives can can circulate around the globe in the way that novels might not without the help of a whole lot of translation. So I, I think lovingly the, um, the, the, the very recent um, South Korean film Parasite, a film about, if not class war, class conflict in a, a very rigorous heightened sense. Um, when the director was given, I think it was the, the, the Palme d'Or Award for that one, he said that he he made a movie about what he thought was a specifically South Korean problem with all its cultural particulars, but he realized that what he actually made was a movie about the country we all live in, and the country is called capitalism, and that's why his film reaches across borders. And I think this is one reason why why the visual may now or once again be a dominant medium for these kind of narratives. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, a, a universal story. You know, the the specifics might differ, but the universal nature of, of the feeling of it, the kind of simmering rage that one can be when kind of set upon was definitely universal. Like I, I remember that, seeing that movie like it was yesterday. It was actually the last movie I think I saw before the pandemic started. So, you know, it has a, a special place in my mind. And um, so interesting to kind of think about think about that echoes of the before times. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I want to, as, as we're kind of getting to the wrap, I want to get to class and identity, right? Which is often at the heart of these conversations. You know, the one tries to superimpose itself over the other often, right? Though they they do have the capacity to work in concert with one another. One of the things that I saw highlighted throughout the reading of the book is the literary sources are wide, right? The net was cast to capture many different types of stories and styles and moments and and use those, again, to advance the particular narrative. Within some of that subtext is clearly identity, right? So as we move forward, another one of these tricky questions, how do we use these moments to further define and make sense of class versus identity as we move forward to have, you know, not so much conversations, but to get to a a better place. And one of the examples I'll use of this is a lot of automotive examples, but I think this is a good one, right? I can sit here and understand the crushing of labor by a ride-sharing app like Uber, right? Clearly unfair in every way that it operates, but also experienced 
racism in, in New York City trying to get a cab, right? Um, that was a very real thing. I know these things are now lost to like sort of stories from old people like myself, but you know, it wasn't that long ago where trying to get a cab to come to Brooklyn from Manhattan was damn near impossible. Like I've gotten in confrontations countless times with folks um, fighting about cabs, right? Those folks often, but not exclusively, brown people like me, you know, primarily South Asian folks, what have you. I illustrate this to say that Uber, the rise of Ubers created like a, a bottoming out of the medallion cab license market here in New York, which became crushing debt for many people who were livery cab drivers um, to the extent that some of these folks were committing suicide, right? They were literally like killing themselves because of the debt of the medallion and not being able to support themselves and all the rest of it. And I found it challenging to find sympathy, not for me, but like when they were marching in, in City Hall here in New York, a lot of folks were like, you know, and, and it really typified the class versus identity thing because a lot of people felt and remembered those slights, right? I remembered them, but I still knew that they were right, <laughs> right? Like Uber sucks and, and no one should be murdering themselves because they can't support them themselves, right? But I still remember that motherfucker's not taking me to Brooklyn, right? So again, class and identity, right? Typified in a very simple truncated story, right? That I'm sure missing lots of nuance, but I'm just speaking from my personal experience, right? How do we move in solidarity and cut through some of those realities of class? Because when I, when I talk to a lot of folks that are pure Marxists that try to convince me that, you know, it's not rot race about class, I'm like, dude, no. That's not, I, I can't get there with that, right? Because I know the Blackness is the, is the nexus, at least in my experience, to which all of this swings, at least in America, right? Because if you land here, you're not at the bottom because you got Black people, right? And every new wave can experience that. Does it make those new waves didn't experience their own thing, but there's still a hierarchy and a hierarchy has class and race in it. Right. So I'm, I'm going out on that question, but how do we start to pull that apart? Sorry to, to drop a, a, a tough one <laughs> as, as we as we end. But I, I wanted to at least give us the opportunity to acknowledge that conflict, even within these conversations. I, I, like a tough one, but an absolutely bloody crucial one that I think just that the, the headline on this one needs to be that. Any class politics worth its salt needs to be militantly anti-racist, anti-sexist, and, and deeply in internationalist. Um, and I, I mean that very sincerely for a, a few different reasons. Um, one is that, and I think as your your anecdote illustrates, that so many moments and movements have been undone, sidetracked, ruined by their own bullshit racism um i there's a chapter in the book set in the american gilded age where, where where we see that in action where the great 1877 railway strike which is which was like a tremendous tipping point of re revolutionary politics in in the u.s it it gained so much force and transformative momentum then became deeply unstuck due to racism in the union ranks disbarring persons persons of color from, from from participating in actions which is not just abject because it's just prejudiced and ethically bad it's also just strategically stupid um this is something that absolutely needs to be overcome at every single level of, of class politics and I think a good deal of that begins with a, a collective recognition at all levels that um, class, not just but especially in the United States, is just a deeply racialized phenomenon, as you're, as you're correct to say. I, I, I think that if we, we try and ignore that, it's by sticking our heads in the, the, the sand. That's just missing so much of what shapes the terrain on which all of us fight. Um, but in terms of overcoming that, one of the 
one of the useful distinctions, and this this comes from very sociological academic thinking about class, is there are two different ways or two dominant ways of thinking about class. One is to think about class as a structure, and the other is to think about class as a formation. Um, Class structure is to think in terms of vertical hierarchies of dispossession and exploitation. So you are in the class structure what you own or what you don't own, who you work for or who works for for you. To think alternatively about class formations, to think horizontally about those that you stand next to, those that you see, those that you meet, and those that you have interactions with, where identity where, where identity has become a, a sticking point within class politics is you get racialized class formations that share so much of a class structure with one another that so many are dispossessed, so many are exploited, but they're exploited and dispossessed differently based on race or other kinds of, of identity category. So I think a whole lot of it comes down to those of us who do not just intellectual work on this kind of stuff, but who who organize, who who work with organizations, who work within and across movements, is to think about how to cut across these formations, to have those within them, to to think expansively and to recognize deep commonalities that might not reside just at the level of everyday experience, but to think about those material forces that do in fact conjoin us without ever discounting or marginalizing or discrediting those those formations, those experiences, which do so much to to shape what what class we belong to. Absolutely. You solved it, man. <laughs> mission mission accomplished. But yeah, put it very, into practice. <laughs> we got to put it into practice very eloquently said, but I, I think it it typifies, you know, we have a lot of work to do. And obviously these are these are serious issues and they have been they're the defining issue of our of our time and have been, right? Like it all boils down to this. And the book is a great one. It's a reference point for so many other things to to read and connect with very deeply. So Class War is is a spectacular addition to to the fight, right? Um, so I want, I want to get to the drop. We're only going to do the drop today. And um, given the, the tone and, and topic of the book, I actually chose to highlight a poet, um, a woman by the name of um, Asia Monet. And I've been familiar with her work for for quite a while. She spoke at a conference that I used to organize called Influencer Conference many years ago. Amazing thinker, amazing activist, amazing artist. Definitely check out her work. Spend some time with it. I think um, anyone who does so will walk away being better for having done it. And that's my drop. So you're up. Anything you want to share with our with our listeners beyond the glossary that already had like <laughs> or, or epilogue rather that already had like a ton of new stuff. But if, if we're gonna ask you for something else to share with our with our listeners. Okay. My drop. I'm gonna recommend the the album, the record that provided the soundtrack for most of my research and, and writing of, of this book. It's um by the Canadian band slash anarchist collective Godspeed You Black Emperor. It's their their album. It came out. Um, I think we only measure time now in terms of where, where where the pandemic was. Um, just around when here in the UK they were starting to open things up and I could finally get out of the house. Their album called um God's Pee at Worlds at State's End. And this album provides, I think, the, the, the there's very little lyrical content on, on it, but as a, as a soundscape, as a great sonic experiment, it provides what I would like this book I've written to, 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 to feel like. It provides the affect, the emotion of so much of what I was thinking and what, what I was driving at with this in the way that it shuffles between cacophonous, noisy, combative rock instrumentation on one hand, but orchestral, string-based beauty and wonder and glory and comfort on the other. The way that it modulates between these two poles is 
one of the, the, the great musical, one of the great artistic experiences I've had in many years. I hope your people like it. Oh, that's awesome. Any drop that has music is going to be one that I love. That's a, that's a band that I'm not familiar with their music, but I'm familiar with their name. And so they're a band that I've seen for, for years and always been like such a fucking cool band name, right? Like now's, now's the time for me to get engaged with, with their work. But that's a great one. Um, Mark, it's been wonderful having you on the show. I, I love the book. You've really like shared so many important insights. And I, I hope that this won't be the, the first and last time that we have a conversation. I'm sure we're going to have you back to expound on this book or probably highlight a new one. So I'm already, I'm already putting you on the hook to write something else. (laughs) Oh, thank you so much for having me. I genuinely enjoyed talking. This has been a really wonderful time. Thank you. Thank you so much for being on the deep dive with me. You can listen to the deep dive via Apple podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at farflungphil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.